All right, come on in, everybody. Find a seat. We will get started. And welcome back. It has been a long time since we have had second hour, going back to before Christmas. And for Christmas and then the day after Christmas and the day after New Year's, those were both already set to be just one service for each of those. But then we thought we would come back together and uh, have the second hour and resume our series called Anxious for Nothing, which we will resume now. But as most of you know, uh, sickness and much of it because of Omicron uh, affected our congregation so much so that we shut down pretty much all of our ministries for January except worship on uh, Sunday morning. So now we're back to our full complement of services, including then beginning, resuming again today, worship at 9.30, and now our second hour in our Sunday school age-graded class is going on as I speak. But we also have everything else starting up. So our men's and women's ministries uh, are resuming this Friday. Uh, the entrusted women's ministry will start back up. The men have had two Saturdays already of the Conquer series. Guys, so you can still be a part of that, with, but this will be about the last because there are 12 of them. You don't want to miss too many. You've missed two so far, but men's and women's ministries are starting back up. Our midweek ministries are also starting back up this Wednesday. Uh, we've got the Adult Community Institute. We've got Pioneer Club. We have uh, High Impact for our teens. All of that's starting up this, this coming Wednesday. Tonight resumes our community groups, and I have especially missed being able to see my community group that meets at my house, and those are starting up then again tonight. They meet on the first and third Sunday evenings of each, each month. So those of you that are assigned to a group, then be at your group uh, tonight. Those of you that are in my group, as I said, I've missed seeing you, so I hope to see you at five o'clock at our place uh, tonight. And if you're not assigned to one you would like to be, then let us know. Send CBC Connect keyword to 97000. Text that and ask for information and we'll get that to you. So everything's starting back up, including now our second hour, and we are resuming our series, Anxious for, for Nothing. And one of the things that I have said in this series thus far about anxiety and worry is that opportunities for worry are unlimited. In fact, we have an outline point. I'm going to have five outline points for you. If you're a note taker, then this is for you. Uh, at the end of this series, we're going to give you, I'm going to give you all the notes anyway, so all of you who want them can, can have them. But if you're a note taker, there it is. Opportunities for worry are unlimited. And I'm reminding you of that because uh, several weeks ago, going back to December when we started this, uh, I made that point that there are unlimited things if you feast your mind upon them and don't think about them from a biblical perspective are then fodder for worry and anxiety and they can fester, and they can become worse for you over time. I said that we live in a time when we have media that is speaking to us uh, in ways and in volumes that the world has never seen. So you have things being presented to you in an array that no one else has ever had. It's just everywhere, and you can turn on messages to you in all sorts of different ways. You can turn it on in radio in your, your car. You can turn it on uh, social media. You can turn on podcasts, cable television, newspapers. Of course, then there's just 
your circle of influencers that are around you that are giving you their take on the way the world works and what you ought to do and how life ought to go, and it's just, it's just bombarding you with messages. And so because these opportunities for worry are unlimited, then it heightens the need to be a steward of your mind. You have to steward, you have to manage your mind and what you allow to come into it. Because if you just let all the voices come in uncritically, then you are now setting yourself up for just the fear that sells. You know, we often hear sex sells, and certainly that's something that marketers use to sell stuff. But let me tell you something, fear sells. Scaring people sells. Telling people that the end of the world is around the corner. That this is the most important election in our lifetime. Do you know how many elections have been the most important election in my lifetime? All of them. Every last one. Why? Because it motivates. It sells. And the more you can get people to come back to your particular podcast, your particular silo of selling people on the fear, well, now that's marketable. Now advertisers want to be a part of that. And they profile you, and they know who you are, and they know what you like, and so they send you product advertisements as you're going to your favorite site or watching your favorite cable station, much of which is designed to scare you. So these opportunities for worry are really unlimited, and it heightens the need to be a steward of your mind and what you allow yourself to take in. When I find myself in my car and I have the radio on, and then it goes to a commercial, I've, often I'll just kind of come out of this daze that I'm in as my mind's going you know, all over. Part of it related to what it was I just heard. But then there's this commercial on, and it's getting a chance to speak to me as well. And then I come out of the daze and I go, why am I letting this person bark at me? Why am I letting this person shout at me? And so my stewardship of my mind kicks in, and I turn it off. So I'm a, I'm, I'm a, a guy who, who cuts out all the commercials as best I can. If I'm watching television, I mute the commercials as soon as they come on. So the point, though, there is that we have to be people who select who gets to talk to us. You don't have to listen to everybody. You don't have to have stuff on in the background. You don't have to have your chosen source of news on in the background all day, every day, designed to scare you. You don't have to do that. And I'm encouraging you then, because opportunities for worry are, in fact, unlimited, then you have to be a steward of your mind and what comes into it so that you limit, you filter what comes in, into your mind. Further, I also made the point back in December that the way we process the unlimited amounts of information that we all have access to in our day and age depends somewhat on our wiring, our nature, and, our, and also our nurture. So when I say our wiring and, and our nature, I mean, we're all different, and our minds all work differently, and the mind is an amazing machine, and with all of our technology and with all of our advances, we still can't fathom the depths of the human mind. God created it. Only God understands 
our minds and all that we are capable of thinking. But we are all different in the way we think, in the way we are wired. And so you get all this information coming at you and we process it differently. You might process information differently than I do. Just by your nature, you just think differently than I do. Not better or worse, differently. But you need to be aware of your own patterns and, and how you do this. You know, some people, as I've told you, are like my daughter, Lainey, who has allowed me to say these things publicly. But Lainey has battled with anxiety, has battled with worry, in large part because Lainey, by nature, <clears throat> is somebody who processes not bits at a time, everything at the same time. She sees everything and she's processing everything. Now, Lainey's very smart. That's not because she's my daughter, it's because she's Kim's daughter. Okay? <laughs> she is very smart. And I have observed that smart people, have, God has given them a mind that tends to work that way. That they can take in large amounts of information, they see everything that's going on, and they're thinking about everything that's going on. Well, the problem, though, you see with that, for that person, is that's more fodder now for worry. Whereas the person who's more naturally just laid back, like me, you know, Kim, I say she's Kim's daughter. I mean, she really takes after Kim this way. Kim's like that. She sees all kinds of stuff. She sees stuff I don't see. And then if you're somebody like me, just fat, dumb, and happy, you don't see, I don't see as much as Lainey does. I don't see as much as Kim does. I don't see as much to be worried about as they do. We're naturally different in the way we think, in the way we process information. That's nature. But then there's nurture. There's how you have witnessed, how you have seen people handle situations. And we're all affected by those. We're affected by our upbringing. We're affected by our parents. If you were raised in a home where somebody got wigged out every time they got a piece of information, you're going to learn that habit. And then you find yourself start doing the same kind of thing. And you said to yourself all the way through your junior high and teen years, I am not going to be like my mom. And then you're in your mid-twenties and you're going, I'm reacting exactly the way my mom did. So your nature and your nurture, they're both powerful and it's helpful for you to identify how it is that you are wired, what it is you have acquired, and then what you've brought to the information with which you're being bombarded. Opportunities for worry are unlimited, so limit them. Filter what gets to come into your mind. Recognize your tendencies if you're one of these people who is over-observant. You see everything and you're thinking about everything all at the same time. See the danger in that and then begin to discipline your mind to focus on just a few things. Now, if I just focus on a handful of things, not everything at the same time. If you're the fat, dumb, and happy type, think about a couple more things, perhaps. If you were somebody who grew up in a home and you saw that this reaction was always to wig out whenever there was any kind of uncertainty, anything that went, that went wrong, 
then recognize that for what it is. And God has a process. I'm going to talk about that process in a little bit for us to replace those things that we have acquired, that we brought into now our adult lives with other things. So the first thing I want you to remind you of, opportunities for worry, unlimited. But secondly, engaging in worry is unchristian. Opportunities are unlimited. Engaging is unchristian. Now, I already said that nurture affects all of us. So what you grew up with and what you saw practiced before you is something that's going to follow you. And if they are negative traits, they're hard, they're hard to break. If they're positive traits, you don't want to break them. And now I'm saying engaging in worry is unchristian. So that can be really difficult to take both of those. On the one hand, I grew up in a home where I saw this and I acquired this, and now you're telling me this is not characteristic of a Christian to do this. But, you know, I didn't, I didn't choose it. It was kind of foisted upon me in my environment. And further, you're also saying that nature affects it, the way you're wired, and now you're making me feel guilty, as you always do when I come to church, by telling me engaging in it is unchristian. So I, I just want you to know I understand that tension, and, and I wanted to say this to you. Uh, those of you who have engaged in worry habitually, and the habit is affected by the way you're wired and what you acquired, both, by your upbringing. But if you've engaged in that habitually, but you come to something like this and you see what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, which we'll be reminded of in a moment, about how worry is not the way of His people. And you see that, and you're convicted by that, and you want, to, you want to put that away. Please understand that when we have habituated sins, habits that we have trained ourselves to do, the Bible speaks to that, but it, it's a process for you to be unhabituated for you to begin thinking in different patterns, to begin thinking in different ways. God tells you how to do it, but it's a process. So, it's a, yes, it is unchristian. And yes, you got it however you got it. By your nature, you got it by your nurture. The truth is all of that is bound up in the fact that you and I and all of us are sinners. And so all of the stuff that we acquire and that we have, then all manifests itself through our sin nature, and a lot of times it's in stuff like worry, anxiety. And yes, it is unchristian, and Jesus then, and the Bible then, speaks against it. But having acquired now these habits in the way you think and in the way you react, the good news is you can be retrained. And the Bible speaks to that. Now, here's where the, one of the places the Bible speaks to that. If you care to jot down 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16, and that verse is one of the more well-known verses in the Bible. Many of you know it because it's a verse in the Bible about the Bible, 2 Timothy 3.16. And it says that all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for, and then it gives four things. It's useful for teaching rebuking, correcting, 
and training. Those four things. So the, the Word of God, Scripture, is useful to provide those four things. And then the next verse, verse 17, says, so that the man or woman of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So here's what the Bible is saying about the Bible. The Bible addresses everything that you need to know and everything you need to do in order to please God, to be equipped for every good work. The Bible's got it. And it brings it to you in these forms, teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training. So the Bible's got all four of those. Now here's what's important and interesting about those four things, is that they are in a logical sequence. Teaching always comes before rebuking. Rebuking always comes before correcting. And all three of those always come before training. I'll prove that in a minute. But they're in a logical sequence. And Paul, who wrote it, in that chapter, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, was already thinking in terms of logical sequence. Because earlier in 2 Timothy chapter 3, he tells uh, Timothy, he says, Timothy, you need to remember your past life and how it is that God has worked in your life and how the Lord brought you to Himself. How that from infancy, verse 15, from infancy, you have been taught the Holy Scriptures which are able to make you, in King James language, wise unto salvation. So the Scriptures were the vehicle that you learned as a kid, Timothy, to bring you to Jesus, to bring you to salvation. That's first. But having brought you to salvation, God doesn't end it there. God now is involved in the process of your sanctification. Salvation first, sanctification second. And how does the sanctification happen? Scripture that brought you to salvation is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training. So Paul's already put this in a logical sequence. Evangelism and edification, salvation and sanctification, however you want to say it. Now you've come to Jesus, you've been saved, but how are you sanctified? How do you grow in Him? It's through the Word of God. And the Word of God does these four things in sequence. It teaches, rebukes, corrects, trains. So let's think about that. It's unchristian. It's habituated for many of us. How do we unhabituate? Well, we're taught. First thing is we're taught in the Word of God. And we are taught the panoply, the, the full body of scriptural teaching about God, about ourselves, about God's world, about His purposes for us. The very best thing that you can do for yourself, friend, is to know what God Almighty has said about Himself, about you, about your world, about other people. And the Word of God has all of that. You're taught. You're taught who God is. That God is all-powerful. That God is, So let me just stop there. God's all-powerful. You're taught that God's all-powerful. And when you worry, do you believe that? Right? Which is why the second thing has to happen. 
you're rebuked because you don't believe what you were taught. So the, the, the first thing is you're, you're taught. You're taught truth about God. You're taught truth about yourself. But then the second thing the Word of God does is it acts as a, a mirror to hold you up, to see yourself as you really are in the way you think, in the way you talk, in the way you act. And are you living consistently with what you've been taught? And too often the answer for us is no. And the Word of God gives us plenty of examples. It gives us narrative literature to show us the lives of people who failed to do these things. And all of that comes under this, this word rebuked. It's the word that's uh, translated elsewhere in Scripture, convict. So the Bible teaches us but then having been taught, there is invariably a gap between the truth that the Bible teaches about God, about us, about others, about His world and His purposes. And as a result of that, God has designed from His Word for us to be convicted, rebuked. In sequence. You've got to have the one before the other. Well, what if, what if God leaves it there? And... You know he could. Nobody can, nobody's made him <laughs> supply the rest of this stuff. I mean, theoretically, God could just tell you, hey, this is the way it's supposed to be. This is who I am. This is who you are. This is the world. This is how you've messed it up. You're convicted. You're rebuked. And it could put a period after that. What if that happened? If you... All scriptures God breathed and is useful for teaching and rebuking, period. How miserable. How thankful you should be, and I should be, that God doesn't leave it there. I teach you, I convict you, I correct you. I tell you how to correct it. There's something wrong. You're worrying all the time. If you believed what you had been taught, you wouldn't be, but you are. Because you really don't believe I'm all-powerful. You really don't believe I'm sovereign. You really don't believe I'm good. You've got a whole bunch of stuff you don't really believe. And as a result, God graciously convicts, God graciously rebukes, so that it can be corrected. You're not going to correct anything that you don't see is wrong. True? And so God shows you that it's wrong. The Bible tells you to be anxious for nothing. In the title of this series, we stole that from Scripture. <laughs> anxious for nothing. Philippians chapter 4. The Bible tells you that's the way it's supposed to be. If it's not that way, then we got something wrong. Teaching. Rebuking slash convicting. And then correcting. And it's a word which means to cause to stand. To cause to stand something that has previously fallen. So if you erect a building, you're causing it to stand. And to correct, then, is to cause to stand something that has previously fallen. And so you've fallen, thus the rebuke, the, the conviction. You're not doing it right. You're not thinking right about God, about yourself, about His world, about others. But God says, my word instructs you on correcting it. Now, under that, under the correction, third piece, 
if you're, the no, if you're some of the note takers, you should then write down putting off and putting on. Because you remember that's language of Scripture, that's the way the Bible talks. The Bible talks about putting certain things off and putting other things on. In Ephesians chapter 4, in Colossians chapter 3, in both of those it uses this put off, put on language. And if you go to those passages, which I highly recommend that you do, you will see that it talks about putting off attitudes, words, and actions. You put off certain ways of thinking. You put off certain ways of talking. You put off certain ways of acting. And you don't leave it at that. There's the put on piece. You see, in biblical counsel, in in biblical spiritual growth, it's never enough to just get rid of the thing you're doing wrong. God is not interested in you just avoiding sin. God is completely interested in you pursuing righteousness. So you replace sin. You don't just stop sin, you replace it. And that's why it's put off, and many people will leave it at that. You know, I used to do that, but I don't do that anymore. And, and you know, and you've seen this happen with people with habits, right? They get rid of one habit. That habit was, you know, causing them health problems or something like that. They get rid of that. But they replace it with some other habit. That becomes a kind of idol for them. And God says, you know, it really matters what you replace it with. So you put it off and you put on the right stuff. In Ephesians chapter 4, Colossians chapter 3, speak to that very thing. And then, fourthly, you train. Training in righteousness. The word that's translated train is the word that's translated discipline. Discipline training in righteousness. And so at the beginning of this, when I said it's a, it's a process, it's not something that happens overnight, you brought your habituated ways of thinking that by nature you acquired, by nurture you acquired. You've been doing it for a long time. But God addresses it. He tells you the truth and what He teaches. He tells you what's wrong with what you're doing. He tells you that you need to put this kind of thing off and put this kind of thing on. But then also, the Bible describes the means of grace through which you will engage in different habits. You will learn and you will do different kinds of habits. Training in righteousness, disciplined righteousness. Well, how do I get that? I just used a phrase. I said, God tells you about the means of grace through which you rehabituate yourself. You rediscipline yourself. You train yourself in in righteousness. The means of grace. That's a historical term. If you were to Google means of grace, you would get all kinds of articles that would tell you that historically, God's people have identified a handful of things that are the means through which God extends His grace into the lives of His people. The first of those is the Word itself, God's Word. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for all these things, so it's first the Word of God. So if you're going to rehabituate, you're going to, and, and you're going to be retrained in that fourth step in the change process, 
then that means you're going to be a person who feasts his or herself on the Word of God. You're going to be somebody who's about the Bible. So as you get bombarded with all the unlimited things to worry about, instead of, your, instead of listening to all that, you're doing something else. You're reading a lot of God's Word. You're taking in a lot of Scripture. You're allowing yourself to be bombarded with truth regularly. You do that in your own reading. You do that in your own devotional time. You do that by availing yourself of a second means of grace. Not only God's Word, but God's people. You show up. You're here. Good. Yay. Keep doing that. You show up. You're around God's people, you're around the church. That's one of His means of grace. And you avail yourself of every opportunity to be around God's people, people who are older than you, older than you in the Lord, who have walked these paths, people who have struggled with these things. And they help you with it. And they show you, the, they show you where they were and where they are, and it gives you hope. Thank God. So you've got God's Word and you've got God's church, if you're God's child, the other means of, another means of grace is God's Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God, who, for every child of God, indwells, not a spatial thing, because if it were spatial things, some of us would clearly have more of the Spirit than others. Anyway, it's not a spatial thing. It's a relational thing. Indwelling is... God's Spirit has a special relationship to every child of God. And God the Holy Spirit does things in the child of God that He does not do in those who are not the children of God. One of the ministries of the Holy Spirit in only believers is something called illumination. That means turning the light on. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. 1 Corinthians Chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, speak of this difference between how the Spirit works in the person who's the believer versus the person who's not a believer. And what God the Holy Spirit does is turns the light on with regard to God's truth for the believer so that you delight at what you read. The same person, two, two different people can read the same thing in the Bible and one delights at it and one doesn't care at all. You know what the difference is? God the Holy Spirit. He illumines. He convicts. He's the one who, as you are taught in the Word of God, that first of the four things, teaching, then rebuking, convicting, it is God the Holy Spirit who does that convicting using the Word of God. If you don't have God the Holy Spirit, there's no conviction, rebuking happening, none. You're just reading words on a page. But John chapter 16 and verse 8, John chapter 16 and verse 8 says it's the Holy Spirit who does convicting. So you've got these means of grace. You've got the Word of God. You've got the people of God. You've got, you've got the Spirit of God. And you avail yourselves of, of those. Now, one subset of the people of God is counselors. People who know the Word of God themselves and who can lead you in it, and you seek out biblical counselors. That's why we want to have a biblical counseling ministry here, because it's a means of grace into the lives of God's people to see the Word of God put into effect in, in people's lives. 
Now, it doesn't have to be a formal counselor. It can be an informal counselor. It can be a brother or sister who simply knows the Word, walks close to God, and can tell you how God has brought them through the various struggles that they've had. I would encourage you to jot down as well Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 14. Hebrews 5.14. Hebrews 5.14. Hebrews 5.14 talks about, the writer of Hebrews talks about the fact that sanctification is a training process. He says there that those who have grown from the elementary things of Christianity to more mature things are people who have done so by constant use, diligent use over time. So you're habituated to worrying and telling you there's hope because God rehabituates people through His process of teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training. So worry is unchristian. And I want to go through three reasons why worry is unchristian. The first one is this, it's unnecessary. It's unnecessary, worry is, because of your father. It's unnecessary to worry about finances, the basics of life, and what we're going to eat, drink, or wear because of who our Heavenly Father is. So, have you been taught who your Heavenly Father is? If you've been taught who your Heavenly Father is and you believe it, then it's unnecessary for you to worry about these things. And that's what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6. Why do you worry about these things? Your Heavenly Father knows that you need them. You guys remember Him saying that? He knows that you need them, and look, observe, look at what He does in His world, and look at what He does with lesser things than you. And He takes care of them, and they don't toil or spin. So it's unnecessary for you to do this if you know who your Father is. But have we forgotten what He is like? Children of caring and resourceful parents never worry about where they're going to get their next meal or whether they're going to have clothes or a bed or something to drink. They never enter the, their minds because they know enough about their parents to know that they will provide for them. And earthly parents don't come close to being as faithful as God. If your concept of God is right, then you'll see Him as the owner, as the controller and the provider. And beyond that, your loving Father. And you'll have nothing to worry about. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone, or asks for a fish, you give him a snake? If then, though you are evil, you know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask Him? So it's unnecessary. God always feeds His creatures. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, in this section, Matthew 6, 25 to 33, Matthew 6, 25 to 33, all about worry and why you shouldn't do it. Jesus says, look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds, feeds them. Further, Jesus said in the next verse, verse 27 of Matthew chapter 6, that worry is unable to accomplish anything productive. He said, can any of you by worrying add a single hour to your life? It's a rhetorical question. Of course not, right? 
if, if you could keep a record, and, and if you're somebody who journals or you diary or something like that, maybe you have this. If you could keep a record of the stuff you worry about and be able to go back and see how much of it actually came to pass. Worry is amazingly unproductive. You can't change the things you can't control, number one. God controls everything, so you can't, you can't change the things you can't control. And further, you try to take control of things that often don't ever come about to begin with. I'm amazed at how many times I talk to people and they are agitated and they are worked up about what they are convinced is going to happen. All kinds of things related to the pandemic. People were all, all lathered about what was going to happen and what was going to happen with the economy and what was going to happen with their jobs and what was going to happen with... And, you know, I, I know that, I know from some of you that you had to face difficult situations, and, and, I, and I mean this sincerely. I, I feel for that, and I pray for you, and I pray directly for many of you because of that, because you told me. So it's not a small thing. But the truth is, for most, in fact, every person that I know of who worried about that, they still got, I don't know of a single person in my own sphere, I don't, and if this you fit this and I don't know about it, I apologize. I don't know of anybody who lost their job. I don't personally know of anybody. But we got really worked up about what might happen. And it didn't happen. Now, did I know it wasn't going to happen? No, it might happen. And some of you may have lost your job, and some of you may still lose your job. I understand that. But even so, does Jesus say for you to worry about it? Jesus says your Father will take care of you. So act like it. Worry is unable, unable to accomplish anything productive, Jesus says. God clothes even the meadows in splendor. So why worry about your clothing? What's the roof that's going to be over your head? Secondly, it's not only unnecessary, it's uncharacteristic. It's uncharacteristic of our faith. Here's what Jesus says in that Matthew 6 passage. If you worry, what kind of faith do you, do you explain? Jesus said this, little faith. If you're a child of God, you by definition have a heavenly Father. To act like you don't, nervously asking, what am I going to eat? What will I drink? What am, how am I going to clothe myself? Is to act like an unbeliever in God's eyes. Do not worry, saying, Jesus said, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For, now here's why, for, the pagans do that. They run after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. Here's why, here's what Jesus says, Matthew 6, verse 30, do not worry about these things, and then the very first word in verse 32 is, for, because. Here's why you don't worry about these things. Because that's what pagans do, and you're not a pagan. That's what the people who don't have God as their heavenly father do. And you are a child of God. So why would you act exactly like those who don't have God as their heavenly father? Well, it's because there are things you're not believing. Back to what you were taught in Scripture. So here's an anonymous poem that expresses some of this pretty simply. Said the wildflower to the sparrow, I should really like to know why these anxious human beings rush about and worry so. 
Said the sparrow to the wildflower, friend, I think that it must be that they have no heavenly father such as cares for you and me. Hmm. I mean, really, that's serious though, isn't it? Because when, when I worry, I am saying, I don't have a heavenly father that cares for me like he cares for the sparrows, like he cares for the wildflowers. And here's a third reason. Jesus gave that you don't worry. Worry is unwise. Verse 34 of Matthew chapter 6, Jesus said, Do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. See, brothers and sisters, dear friends, the reason I'm saying to you, don't manufacture new stuff to worry about, is because we live in a fallen world. And a fallen world always has plenty of stuff to confront you every moment of every day that you've got to deal with, you've got to respond to. And if you haven't disciplined your mind with regard to who your God is and who you are in relationship to Him and what He's doing in His world, and you don't think in those patterns, then as you have to deal with just all the stuff that comes at all of us every day, you have added to that monumentally, by your concern about what might happen tomorrow and what might happen next week and next year. We all have concerns that we have to deal with. It's hard enough to live in a fallen world, is it not? It's hard enough to go to the doctor and get diagnosed with whatever it is that's going on to you. I'm learning that more and more. I will be 60 next month. So now I got, you know, that phase that you're kind of mo you're moving into. I haven't had that in the past. And now it's got weird stuff that happens. And it's going to be downhill from here. Right? All right, so that's, that's the way it's going to go. That's life in a fallen world. If I add to it what might happen, what could happen. So Jesus says today's got enough trouble of its own. Worry paralyzes its victim, making him or her too upset to accomplish what God has given to them. It will seek to do that to you by taking you mentally into tomorrow until you find something to worry about. So refuse to go along for that ride. The Lord said you have enough to deal with today. Apply today's resources to today's needs or you will lose today's joy. Apply today's resources to today's needs or you will lose today's joy. And that's the last thing. Is that, friends, if we give way to worry, we give way to anxiety, then we are displacing the joy that we're to have in the Lord. It's one of the fruit of the Spirit. Joy. But how can I be joyful if I'm not thinking about God the way I should? How can I be joyful and how can I display that to other people as a manifestation of the difference between a child of God and someone who is not? So it harms our testimony. Now we're going to continue for the next few weeks with this and then let me tell you where second hour is going over the next few weeks. Our anxiety series will continue. But then uh, for the next few weeks on March the 20th, we start our four-week newcomers orientation. So those of you that have never taken the newcomers orientation, that's for you. So please mark that March 20th during this hour, our four-week newcomers orientation. We offer it three times a year, 
As the name suggests, it's for people who are new to our church, and it offers you an opportunity to learn more about who we are and why we do stuff the way we do and all of that. Uh, I lead that during those four weeks. We will be in another part of the building, in a classroom. We'll give you a notebook of material. It doesn't obligate you to anything. We don't follow up and hassle you after and say, okay, you took the newcomer's orientation. Now you have to join the church or get out of here. We don't do any of that. We give you the information to help you prayerfully make a decision about, is this the place that the Lord would have you? Simultaneous with that, those of you that have joined our church, and we've had a number of you do that, since the last Newcomers and Membership 101, Pastor Larry will be doing four weeks with our Membership 101 class. You'll receive an invitation if you've joined our church since the last one, and Pastor Larry will lead that. And then the rest of you who aren't in either of those uh, we will have some of our guys uh, teaching in here for those four weeks. At the end of those four weeks, the next week is Easter. Easter is on April the 17th this year. And on Easter, we only have one service, our worship service. And the following week, April the 24th, we start a new series in here that we're going to send mailers to Trenton to invite people to come. We encourage you to invite folks to come as well. It's a series on resolving conflict, what the Bible says about resolving conflict. But that will start the week after Easter, okay? Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for the blessings of the Lord's Day. Lord, it's one of the means of grace that we are able to gather together uh, as your people and to be reminded in song of, of who you are, to be reminded from your word as to what you have given us to do in our short time on your earth, to fellowship together, to encourage and to be encouraged. And so, Lord, I thank you for the wisdom of these brothers and sisters and your kindness in allowing us the health and the freedom to be here together, to avail ourselves of this means of grace. Help us this week to avail ourselves of the others, of being immersed in your word so that we think properly about, about you, so that we're corrected in our false patterns of, of, of thinking. And Lord, we are engaged in the discipline training process of rehabituating our thoughts and our words and our deeds. Go with us this week, we ask you, Lord. Grant us safety. Offer us opportunity to act as your ambassadors before those that are in our sphere of influence. And bring us back safely next Lord's Day. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.